Well, welcome to summer here at GBC 2023. Woohoo! Yeah, very excited about summer. And uh, specifically, we are pivoting into our summer preaching series this morning. And so we're looking at this series over the summer called Words That Know Me, as we kind of hit these uh, several touch points in the book of Psalms over the summer. We encourage you to be in the Psalms this summer as we go through these, uh, the Psalms that we're going to look at. Uh, one of our staff, whom you hear from in a little bit, he said, you know, the way that we're looking at the Psalms, the sort of micro survey that we're doing, if you will, is like skipping rocks across the ocean. Uh, and what we're going to do at each week, however, is kind of allow that rock to go deep as we spend some time in some notable psalms. There are others that you're going to think, gosh, why didn't we study this psalm? We only had a few weeks. And so uh, I'm going to share those uh, in a few moments. Uh, but a little bit about the book of Psalms as we kind of approach it, uh, you know, from the outside looking in or sort of at a macro level. Number one, uh, Psalms is by some measures the third largest book in the Bible. It contains the longest chapter in the Bible in Psalm 119, uh, which by itself would be an amazing preaching series and maybe in a summer to come. Uh, it also contains the shortest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 117. And so you can kind of check those are your Bible trivia notes for this, for this week. Uh, Psalms is largely authored by David. He authors, at least ascribed to him, 73 Psalms, and there are another 47 or so, which most of which are probably also authored by him. And then there are others. His chief musician Asaph uh, writes a bunch. Solomon is actually attributed to a couple, Moses, and so on and so forth. The Psalms are written over uh, about a millennium, from about 1500 B.C. through roughly 600 B.C. And uh, we've kind of wrapped our, our um, identity through the Psalms this summer around this idea of words that know me. That the Psalms provide something to us that, that they're, they, they provide words that express what I'm thinking and feeling as I cry out to God in my need for him, as I cry out to him in confession of sin, as I respond to perhaps with anger to the in, injustices and the, and the trials of, of our world and our lives, as we express excitement over some of the great things going on in our lives or maybe uh, just a joy in God's goodness. And so they serve, the Psalms serve as both a songbook or a hymn book as well as a, a liturgy for us uh, in our worship of God, both as a, a corporately as a church, but also individually in our devotion times. They provide a, a liturgy to um, help describe him accurately to my own heart. The Psalms catechize or teach me uh, my mind about who God is, the truths of, of God, who he is, who I am, and what he requires of me. We're going to see that even this morning. The Psalms direct me to where I need to go in times of both trial and joy. They lead me beside quiet waters, as it were, as Psalm 23 tells us. And the Psalms also kind of getting closer to our theme title this morning. They're a mirror that reveal who I truly am, both who I truly am apart from Christ, and then when I step into a relationship with God through Jesus, who I am in Christ. The Psalms are also the words of Jesus himself. Jesus quotes the Psalms when he teaches both his disciples and the crowds. He quotes the Psalms when he rebukes his objector, objectors. Jesus quotes the Psalms in his cries of anguish from the cross itself. And Jesus quotes the Psalms in words that hint of the triumph of his victory over the grave. You see, the Psalms are words that know me because they are the words of the heart and mind of God from the lips of Jesus himself. 
So let's talk about Psalm 1 uh, from an introductory point of view. It's, we, we believe that the Scripture is both inerrant and inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so Psalm 1 is at the very beginning of the Psalter with the very purposes in mind of God. It's, it's intentional. It's not an accident. And this Psalm really pre- uh, presents a, a preface or even a thesis statement of what the, the whole Psalter is about. It's, it kind of serves as, a, as the what what is the purpose of this psalm? What, is the, what are we being called to? And then you could make the argument, the, the rest of the Psalter is the how. How do we then live in this particular way? But a little bit of a twist this morning. I'm going to tell you that uh, I'm not actually going to preach this message this morning, even though I usually do the opening message of the summer. You see, about six weeks ago, I was flying to Texas for some uh, training and consulting with our caring pastor, Jason Wallace, working on the summer. And I just felt this conviction from the Holy Spirit that I wasn't supposed to preach this message, but that, that he was. Now, as a backdrop, I, I understood, because I've known Jason for a very long time, how um, meaningful this psalm is in his own life and how uh, important it's been in his work and his ministry here at Groton Bible Chapel as he's cared for you all. And so uh, I'm going to go sit down over there, and Jason's going to come and preach to us on someone. Would you give him a warm welcome? Good morning, everybody. How many of you remember this? Be like Mike right? This came out in 1985, and it's an example of what's called influencer marketing, where someone who people would like to be like is put into a position to sell a product, uh, to, to market a product, and it's very effective. It's very effective. The year that this came out, uh, this was for Gatorade, Gatorade sales doubled in that year, significant amount. Since then, uh, Nike has got on board, and there was a movie that just came out about this. Uh, His sales of of Air Jordans, the sneakers, have raked in $16 billion since 1985, since that came out. Hugely influential. And right now, there is this whole industry of people who are called influencers. And these are folks who are online, and they make videos of themselves doing various things, uh, whether it's working out or whatever, cooking, and they are paid based on how many followers they have, right? And it's estimated that last year, this industry took in $22 billion, just in a year, just in a year. So we have this like obsession, people have this obsession with being like someone else, right? And the desire to be like someone else is almost always unrealistic. Like, how many of us can actually be like Mike? Millions of kids wanted to be like Mike. You know, you see the kids with their tongues hanging out like him. It's a good way to lose your tongue. Um, But this whole thing makes me think of what's probably my favorite line in a movie ever. And this is from 1973's Magnum Force. Dirty Harry says, a man's got to know his limitations. And I wish I was a person who could do impressions because the way he delivered this line is great. It's got this characteristic little smirk. He's, it's a great line, and it's actually saved me from a lot of trouble. <laughs> so I heard a sermon a few months ago where a pastor talked about what he wanted to be. And 
He said of all the things that he could be, what he wanted to be in life was a Psalm 1 tree. I've spent a lot of time in Psalm 1. I've used it for counseling. I've studied it and contemplated it for years. I've tried to follow it. So when he said that, it really struck a chord with me because to me, the ultimate achievement that a human being could, could have or could be on this planet while alive is to be like a Psalm 1 tree, like what's described here in this psalm. But is it a pipe dream? Is God setting us up with this hypothetical person that is unattainable? Could we actually be like this person? Well, we're going to pray, and then we're going to find out. So please join me in prayer. Father, your word is so deep and so rich, and there is no end to it. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that we could read a single verse a thousand times and still pick up something else that we didn't see before. Lord, that is just a glimpse of your character, of who you are. And we thank you and praise you for that. And as we dive into this psalm, Lord, would you speak to us through it? Uh, would our hearts be tilled and fertile and receive uh, the seeds that you would have planted? And may they grow and bear rich fruit. Father, we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have a Bible or a phone, I'd invite you to open up to the first chapter of Psalms. We're going to read this. The whole chapter is only six verses. It's only six verses. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that within these six verses is the formula for life. Like as in one plus one equals two. The formula for life. So let's read along. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers? Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted besides flowing streams that bears its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous." For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. I genuinely do consider this psalm to be the formula for life. David sets up this hypothetical person that he calls the one, and he asks us to look at their life. He tells us that our life can be like theirs. Well, at first glance, the formula could appear kind of simple. It could look like avoid wickedness, read the Bible a lot, and you'll have an awesome life, right? It's not so simple. So we have to ask some tough questions of the scripture. And the first is, is, it a, is a formula worth solving? Is the person presented here in Psalm 1 someone we actually want to be like? So we're going to look at what is a Psalm 1 tree. We see in verse 1 that this person is happy. Some translations call this blessed or how blessed is the one. And the word translated as happy here is the Hebrew word esher, E-S-H-E-R, and its meaning is actually quite deep. For starters, it means happiness and contentment, but it also means to be right with God. There is nothing, 
no unconfessed sin, no behaviors like dishonoring your wife or making fun of the poor, mistreating the poor. Nothing stands between you and God. You are right with God. Esher is also a plural word, meaning not just happy and content, but a multiplicity or an intensification of happiness and contentment. You could call it pure happiness and contentment. So this person, the Psalm 1 tree, is ultimately happy. What else? Well, this is where the tree analogy comes in. When you look at a strong, healthy tree, there are several characteristics that it has in a certain environment that it exists in. The tree described here has a continual source of water. Jesus calls himself living water, water that never runs out. And he says, if we drink of him, we will never be thirsty. So Psalm 1 is actually David prophetically speaking of Christ. Because this tree has a constant source of water, it never withers. Its roots are strong and deep, giving it strength and stability in the midst of the storms. And let's be real, life is full of storms. And that doesn't stop when you become a Christian. It actually can get worse when you become a Christian. So the life of a deeply rooted believer is marked by stability and contentment in the midst of storms. The fruit that this tree bears is the fruit of the Spirit. Gary talked about this a few weeks ago. Love and joy, and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. This is the fruit that is born from this tree. Now, if your life is not marked by this fruit, imagine if it was. Imagine if it was. Imagine if you didn't have to white-knuckle through storms. Imagine if you didn't have to squeeze patience out in the midst of storms. Imagine if joy was what you actually experienced instead of acting like you had joy. If you are deeply rooted in Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit is evident in your life. That brings us to the idea of, a fruit, of this tree bearing fruit in its season. At times, we experience God's pruning, his pruning. He cuts out parts of us that are destructive, that suck the life out of us, parts that don't belong. And these times can be painful. But personally, I've learned even more in these times. I've learned my own limitations. I've learned more about the character of God. In the 1600s, a Bible commentator named John Trapp said this, he said, there are no barren trees in God's orchard, and yet they may have their fits of barrenness as an apple tree sometimes has, but they will reflourish with advantage. This tree is also described as having leaves that don't wither. This means that the person who is a Psalm 1 tree is constantly aware of the love of Christ, like a leaf on a tree that is constantly soaking in the sunlight. Ephesians 3 reads, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all of the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure 
of all the fullness of God. A Psalm 1 tree is constantly aware of God's presence. And whatever this tree does prospers. Now, excuse me, this section has been ripped out of context and it's been used to promote the prosperity gospel, but this is not about Christians having the Midas touch. Not, not about Christians being rich and comfortable. It means that the life of a righteous follower of Christ, God brings something good and wonderful out of everything, including tough circumstances. So let's review. This person, the Psalm 1 tree, is intensely content and joyful. They are right with God. They are stable and secure, spiritually well-fed and nourished, and they bear rich fruit. And all circumstances, no matter how painful, lead to their good and God's glory. So with all that said, here's the question. Would you like to be this person? The beautiful thing about this psalm is that it is an invitation to an existence here on earth that is attainable. Charles Spurgeon said this about Psalm 1. He said, it is not blessed is the king, blessed is the scholar, blessed is the rich, but blessed is the one. This blessedness is as attainable by the poor, the forgotten, and the obscure as by those whose names figure in history and are trumpeted by fame. David's audiences in this, in this psalm is not just a chosen few, but it's everyone. So would you like it to be you? If so, let's figure that out. Let's look at the components of this formula. Pretty obviously, there are two. One, there is a call to maintain distance from wickedness. And number two, there is a call to maintain closeness with God's word. We're going to go through these one at a time. The first is found in verse one. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers? The first part to consider is the advice that you follow. Walk in the advice of the wicked. Everywhere you look, you will find advice. The world has lots of ideas about how everyone should live, and usually those ideas are pretty bad. But what is also true is that the most common source of bad advice is myself. I've talked myself into doing some pretty awful things. And one of the red flags I look for when I'm wondering if uh, what I want to do is the right thing or not is if I have a desire to make a decision in a vacuum. When I do that, I found that it's always because deep down I know it's not the right thing to do and I'd really rather not face that. I'd really just rather do what I want. For me, an area that I have to be extra careful in is how I spend my money. Sometimes I see a shiny thing like on Facebook Marketplace and I start scheming about how to get it. And the first indication that it's a bad idea is if I'd really rather not run it by my wife. <laughs> she gives me good advice, and if I'm kind of not wanting to seek it, I really need to check myself, because that's probably the wrong thing to do. So don't walk in the advice of the wicked. How about the pathway of sinners? Gary reminded us a few weeks ago that people know when something is wrong. Deep down, we know, whether it's immoral, unethical, mean, vengeful, uh, selfish, whatever, and we can pretty much easily choose 
to stand in that path. It's a wide, easy, and often satisfying pathway to stand in, and the world invites us to stand there every day. As an example, consider how often we have the opportunity to gossip, to whisper to each other about the choices or circumstances of someone else's life. Gossip is like a tray of freshly baked cookies. It's enticing, it's available, and it's easy. But the consequence of gossip in a community is that everybody operates in shameful secrecy and isolation. Folks don't dare to ask someone to bear a burden that they're carrying because of how their information could be used against them. So instead, they suffer in secret. David's words in this psalm call us to choose to not stand in that pathway because there is no strength or stability or joy there. So avoid ungodly counsel and avoid bad pathways. The last one is to not sit in the company of mockers. The world loves to mock God and mock the things of God. And here's a really interesting thing about the word for mocker. The Hebrew word for mocker is actually translatable as the word for ambassador. Think about that for a second. The airwaves are full of people who loudly pronounce their hatred for God and of those who believe in him. It's not enough for them to hate God. They have to loudly ridicule those who do and invite others to their side. They are ambassadors for the hatred of God. Avoid these people like they were a disease. Stay away from them. Avoid ungodly counsel, avoid bad pathways, and avoid haters of God. I want to offer you an application for all of this avoiding of wickedness. However, it's important that we not make this about looking at the sinning and wickedness of others, but within ourselves at our own wickedness. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but not notice the beam of wood in your own? Now, we could spend some time here diving into various sinful behaviors, but I want to talk about a truly foundational area of sin. It's foundational because if we don't tackle this, nothing else matters. And I'm wondering in my head what you might think it is. I'm wondering if you might think it's sexual immorality or language or anything else. This thing will keep us from ever being a Psalm 1 tree. You ready? Here it is. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And then he said in Luke chapter 6, Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And then again in Mark and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Catching the theme here? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 again, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. As followers of Christ, I really can't think of anything more important than forgiving others. If I refuse to forgive someone who's sinned against me, I'm essentially cut off from God. 
And if that's the case, there's no amount of behavior modification or avoidance of sin that I can do that will ever result in me being a Psalm 1 tree. Just isn't possible. Forgiveness seems like a difficult thing because we tend to feel that by refusing to forgive a huge offense that's been committed against us, it's like we're holding the offender in prison. And the idea of letting them go free is repulsive. They simply don't deserve to be free. But in reality, forgiving someone doesn't let them out of prison. It lets us out. If we don't forgive, we are the ones who are imprisoned by it. We're imprisoned by our own bitterness and anger and by a separation from God. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells the parable of the unmerciful servant. The servant in the parable begs to be forgiven an enormous debt and his master mercifully forgives him from it. Then the servant goes out and immediately comes across someone who owes him a much smaller debt. He demands payment and refuses to forgive the debt even though the man begs to be forgiven. The master finds out about this and he says, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then Jesus cuts straight to the heart. And he said, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Forgiveness doesn't mean that what someone did to you isn't wrong. It means that you recognize that vengeance belongs to God, not to you. And Jesus gave a very clear application of how to do it. He said it means canceling the debt that someone owes to us. There are people in my life who've deeply hurt me. And what they've done wasn't fair, and I didn't deserve what happened. And if I'm straight up honest, there's nothing they could ever do to make up for it. When they've come to mind, my heart became full of bitterness and anger, and I've wanted them to suffer for what they've done. I've even pictured them apologizing to me and me turning up my nose at them because there's no amount of apologizing that they could ever do that would make up for it. But then I've genuinely forgiven them. And I have to do that repeatedly because let's face it, the sins that are committed against us are never actually forgotten, right? When the opportunity has come up to look back in my own ledger, at my own book of debts that are owed to me and reopen a wrong that was done to me, I have to refuse to do that. They simply don't owe me anymore. The chains of unforgiveness don't hold me down anymore in the same way that I no longer owe God the debt of my sin against him because Jesus broke those chains. The Lord's Prayer reads, forgive us our sins as we or in the same way as we have forgiven those who've sinned against us. If you have any desire to be like a Psalm 1 tree, the component of the formula about avoiding wickedness starts with forgiving others who've sinned against you. We can never get there without that. If that's an area of difficulty for you, if that's something you struggle with, please seek out wise counsel on that. So that's the first section. Avoid ungodly counsel, avoid bad choices, and steer clear of those who spit venom at God and, by extension, you. That can be summed up as avoid wickedness. 
The next part of the formula is from verse 2. It reads, instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. So instead of steeping in wickedness, the Psalm 1 tree delights in God's word. They meditate on it. They ponder it. I've had the opportunity throughout my life to speak with several atheists, several atheists who claim that they've read the Bible cover to cover, and they can even recite verses from memory. Well, guess what? Demons can do that too. A Psalm 1 tree doesn't just read God's word and memorizes it. They soak in it joyfully. I grew up in New Haven, New Haven, Connecticut, right down the road. And in New Haven, there is two things. Number one, there's the best pizza in the world, which I'll debate that with anybody. But on Worcester Street in New Haven, there is also the best gelato in the world. And I've been to Europe. Libby's Italian Bake Shop. And every once in a while, I will indulge myself in a little cup of pistachio gelato, and the world just stops. God is faithful, and his word is true. And the more you engage with him in his word, the more it will become like that gelato. It will be a, a world-stopping event, a world-stopping delight to dive into. You will hunger for his word and hunger to apply it to your life. It is the bread of life. And anything else you try to take fulfillment from is like trying to get nourishment from smelling food. If you're feeling distant from God, it's very likely a lack of forgiveness. If you're feeling spiritually starved, it's most likely that you're trying to live on something other than God's truth. So this is the formula for an ultimate life, for the ultimate life. If you avoid wickedness, most importantly in yourself, and you delight in God's word, you will be a Psalm 1 tree. You can have that. That can be you. Like Gary said at the beginning, Psalm 1 is the what, and the rest of the Psalms are the how. So I'd like to invite you to go on this journey with us through the summer as we take a dive into the Psalms. Folks, would you uh, stand up and join us as we sing together? Grace appeared 
Thank you, Jason. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for the image that you've given us in Psalm 1 that we can trace all the way through Scripture. Lord, just confess in my own life that so many times, rather than being a firmly planted tree, I'm more like a, a tender plant on the bank. And when the waters rise, the roots are washed out from underneath and I'm swept away. Lord, we've heard from your word this morning a challenging exhortation, perhaps even a rebuke 
for us in our unforgiveness. And God, would you forgive us that we might then forgive others. We thank you for the mercy and the grace of the cross and the death of you, Jesus, on our behalf. Lord, would you be with us throughout this day? Would you, even as we contemplate and meditate on what we've heard this morning, would you, by your Holy Spirit, birth spiritual maturity and growth in each one of us? We pray in Jesus' name.